Megan, I have been using our sponsor Element, that's L-M-N-T, to boost my hydration for over a month now, and I'm really loving it. I'm just not very good at drinking plain water, and I love the taste when I pop one of these little packets, I like orange or grapefruit, into a big bottle of water. It's kind of fruity and salty, and it just helps me hydrate better overall. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix born from the growing body of research that shows the best health outcomes occur with higher sodium levels. Each little pack delivers a significant dose of electrolytes, but minus sugar, artificial colors, and other iffy ingredients. Element's flavors are so unique, like fruity watermelon salt and spicy sweet mango chili. And we're going to set our listeners up with a variety pack so you can find your favorite. Right. You can receive a free Element sample pack containing eight flavors with any drink mix purchase when you purchase through our custom link, drinkelement.com slash momhour. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T slash momhour. This offer is available exclusively through our partnership and is available for both new and returning customers. And if you're an Element Insider, you'll have first access to Element Sparkling, a bold can of sparkling electrolyte water. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash momhour. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Mom Hour. I am Sarah Powers, here today with our monthly interview episode. So we do interviews only once a month on this show, and Megan and I take turns doing them. So if you're new around here, keep listening for a great conversation with today's guest, Kelly Hiltz. But then also make sure to pop back on a Tuesday for one of our more typical conversational episodes. Okay, if you saw the title of today's episode and thought it might not be for you because your kids are either way too young or way too old to think about kindergarten, this part is for you. Now, of course, Kelly and I do focus quite a bit on the early school years in today's conversation, but it's really so much more about reframing some of the themes that I've been seeing circulated for the last several months when it comes to education at all levels. You know, parents are worried, understandably, about the academic loss from the pandemic. They're worried about disruption to social-emotional skills building. They're worried about things like learning differences and special needs, which have really been especially challenging to navigate over the last year. And look, on this show, Megan and I try to walk a fine line between assuring you that it's really all going to be okay, just like we say in our intro, but also empowering you to trust your gut as a mom, advocate for your kid when you need to, and find trusted people to have in your corner who can support and advise you from an expert perspective. So today's episode really walks along that line. For parents listening who have some buzzing anxiety about next school year, I hope this just kind of calms you down a little bit. For parents navigating something really big right now, I hope you feel after listening to Kelly that you too are going to be supported and understood as you move through this. And for parents listening who are years away from or maybe years ahead of the kindergarten phase, I hope you'll stick around too. And speaking of parents of older kids, I'm really excited that we have a bonus companion episode to this one that's going to drop into your feed next Friday, a week from today. It's a conversation I had with a longtime listener who is also a college professor, and you'll hear us talk about some of the upsides and downsides to online learning at the higher education level. I'm really excited to kind of pair these two episodes together this month because there are some interesting parallels between our littlest learners and our young adults. And I think if you're anywhere in the middle of those two extremes, you'll really get something out of both conversations. Okay, here's a little bit about today's guest. 
Kelly Hiltz is first and foremost a member of this community. She's a longtime listener. And can I say, I really just love when we can bring our listeners onto the show as guests. She's a kindergarten teacher, a mom of two boys who are in preschool and first grade this year. And she's on Instagram as Ask a Teacher Mom. Kelly was on the show way back in March of 2018. And when she came on the first time, we talked almost the entire episode about what it means to be quote unquote ready for kindergarten. And while we do touch on that today, and we'll touch on the concept of red shirting or holding kids back, if you get to the end of today's episode and you really want to dig in more on what kindergarten readiness really means, head to Voices episode number 23 from March of 2018, and we will link that up in the show notes. Okay, friends, I'm really excited to welcome Kelly Hiltz back to the podcast. Let's dive in. Hi, Kelly. Welcome back to the Mom Hour. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so glad to have you back. We have so many anxious and eager, um, I will say, primary school years moms listening. We're not just going to talk about kindergarten today, but a lot about kindergarten. So we're very glad you're here. Um, Listeners, you're not going to believe Kelly's teacher slash mom situation the last year, year plus, although people will believe it because we have people all over the country who've been been living this. So Kelly, when I reached out and I was like, hey, just remind me, like, were you guys remote this year? Are you in person? And you sent me an email and you're like, well, I have kind of done it all. So I'm going to set the stage and I'm going to I'm going to almost read back to you what you sent me. And then I just love to hear like you touch on some of the some of the points in this journey that maybe felt craziest or if I get anything wrong, feel free to correct me. So you when the pandemic hit, you had a six year old and a three year old. So your three year old was in preschool. Your six year old. Was he kinder that year? Was he first in kinder? Yeah. Okay. So the pandemic hits in the spring. We all know how that went down. As a kindergarten teacher, you went to fully remote, but it sounds like kind of like what happened to my kids, which is they had a couple Google meets each day, but it wasn't like a full day of in of, of virtual instruction. It was like yes. it was chaos. So you yes. went to that. I would I would assume your kindergartner kind of also went to that. And then yes. your preschooler was just home because because just daycares home. daycares were closed. Okay, so March through June last spring was crazy town. And I think a lot of us remember that as like, it wasn't even school. It was like, it was like a crisis survival mode. Okay, so then there's a summer and then you start back this fall um, totally virtually, which for you meant more of a traditional instruction for your kindergartners, right? So you're meeting your new little kinders all online and you're kind of moving through the day on a screen with them. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. Meanwhile, you have a first grader in your house, right? With you? Who is also doing that? Only he's in his class. And then at that time, your, your preschooler was able to go back because of the daycare. Yes. Okay. Okay. So that is how the year started back in the fall. And then I loved this one. So October, 2020 through March, 2021, which is the bulk of, you know, big chunk of this school year that we're still in was hybrid. And you said something like, that sounds really simple, but actually it was like 20 different iterations of hybrid. And what's, what stuck out to me in what you wrote is that a student's experience of hybrid uh, is different than the teacher's, meaning like yes. you, oh my gosh, maybe you can just explain it and start, yeah, with, I mean, start with how you taught, how your students were learning, and then also how your son was experiencing yeah. hybrid. So basically, yeah, and the other thing that made it confusing is that both my son and I were in different districts and we switched to remote at different times. Like, uh-huh. oh, there's seems like there's more COVID cases. We're going to stop for a week. 
was, you know what I mean? That kept happening. Right. Um, so basically for hybrid, it was, I was teaching in the morning at school and then I would come home at lunch and teach remotely in the afternoon. And my kindergartners would basically do the same, except for that only half of them were there at a time. So Monday, Tuesday, and every other Wednesday would be one group, cohort A, and then cohort B was Thursday, Friday, and every other Wednesday. Um, But my gosh, was that I got to see all of them every afternoon, which was like a nice check-in. Okay. Um, On the computer, on the Zoom. Yes, on the computer. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And then my son, his hybrid was actually different. It was week on, week off. So he would have a (laughs) pretty much normal, a slightly shorter day, but like pretty much normal. And then he would just be home for an entire week. Wow. So, So, yeah, I can kind of picture how. And and then, like you said, in through all of that, each separate district, your sons and yours are making yeah. game time decisions about like, oh, we got to stay yes. home for a couple of weeks. And oh my yes. gosh, I'm just imagining you waking up like, what day is it? And where, where am I supposed to be? Yes. Um, and yes. I would imagine that um, things like, I don't know, busing and aftercare and some of the, like, the built-in safety nets for teacher moms were probably yeah. still faltering a little for your son, right? Like was he, yeah. did it create issues with like getting him to and from school and drop-offs and all of that? So bus was intact. Um, Week of school, he was the only child riding his bus. So (laughs) a lot of people were using it, but here I was. Um, So bus was fine. There was no after school um, or before school. So that was a lot of family help. Right. Right. Because you are teaching full time and you have a class of kinders. How many kinders have you are in your class this year? This year I have 16, which is extremely low for me. Yeah. A lot of families either did not send their child or went the private route for this. Sure. Yeah. We know with that kindergarten year, often there's an option to like stay at a childcare or a preschool or a Montessori or something. So I can see how this might've been that year for some people who maybe that wouldn't have been their plan, but seemed like a good option. Um, Okay. And then that brings us to this spring and you are back full-time in person. You said with lots of changes to how kindergarten operates, but basically a normal school day for you and your 16 kinders. And then your son is back in person uh, with an hour shorter instruction day in his first grade at a different district. So does, yes. I mean, first of all, yep. congratulations to getting Thank you. to, to getting to that point. <laughs> oh my gosh. And how much longer, like, do you guys go into June because of some of this? Yeah, or what's your- we, we always do um, up here in Massachusetts. That's the normal um, towards the end of June, not the very end, but um, mm-hmm. you know, we all have like different ending dates, like the 7th yeah. 20th kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. I wanted to paint that picture. We have a lot of teachers in our community. We have a lot of moms of kinders and we also are, we know there are people from all over different parts of the country. So I just think that's interesting. And just as we move into our conversation to let everybody know, you have taught kinder virtually, you have taught kinder hybrid, you have taught kinder in person in a pandemic, all while having a first grader and a preschooler yourself. So I, I, um, award you like a lot of credibility for this conversation. (laughs) Thank you. It was done with a lot of help. I should say my husband's also a teacher. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's talk a little bit about, I think we're, we're facing this spring where things are starting to look up, but I think it's important to acknowledge how hard this year was, especially for parents of kindergartners. And 
I, I know several parents of kinders in my own personal life. And then, of course, we have our listener community who talks to us a lot in the Facebook group. And I can't think of a single kinder parent who didn't say that remote or virtual learning wasn't just so hard on their kids. So first of all, I want to validate that. Um, and I'm wondering if you can speak to why virtual learning might have felt so hard for kindergartners specifically. And I can say that I had a second grader and a fifth grader learning remotely at the beginning of the year. And that second grader was actually in first last spring when COVID hit. And I can, I can definitely see how there's just a difference in kinder versus first versus second and beyond about how they learn, what they're used to. So why, why was it so hard? And maybe you can speak like almost from the academic or the, the um, curriculum or the teacher perspective on that. Yeah, there's a few reasons why I think it's really hard at the kindergarten level, starting with the fact that they just don't have a lot of academic independence yet. So typically in a normal year, and even this year, when I'm teaching them in person, we do what's called like a mini lesson, like 10 to 15 minutes of me talking. I mean, they're participating, like raising their hands and things, but I'm explicitly teaching them something. Mm -hmm. And then they go either back to their seats or this year just stay at their desks. Um, and do something independently or with a partner. But it's not like, oh, first do this, then do that, then do this. It's pretty much like do this one game for the next 10 to 15 minutes to maybe three directions. It's not like all these different things. And with remote, depending on how, I mean, remote instruction can look so different, but when anything independent is involved, so like, for example, on the mornings when my children you know, my other cohort was home, but I'm at school with one cohort. Those kids have to be independently working. And that's just not possible in kindergarten. They just don't have that ability for a couple of reasons. One being multi-step directions. Another reason is they can't read yet. Yes. I'm so So, glad you brought that up because that was my observation having a second grader this year, um, who's, I would say pretty typical on the reading journey. Like she's not super far ahead or behind and just the difference between a a room of, or a virtual room of second graders, most of whom who can read, like read a little bit. It just was so much easier for a worksheet or a journal prompt or whatever. And you, you subtract two whole academic years from that. And then you're so right. Just that, that alone creates such challenges, right? There's no real ability to give them directions. Um, without a person telling them the direction. Me or someone at home has to tell them the directions. So that is probably the biggest issue. Um, And then another one that I'm I'm sure parents will understand because this was an issue for my first grader um, is just that the motivation level for academics is different at this age, I think. Yeah. Um, It's kind of, I guess I knew about this prior to remote school because um, I often have parents say like, oh, how did you get them to do that? They never will do that at home. (laughs) They'll just do it for me because I'm a different adult. I'm their teacher. And because everyone else around them is doing it. Yes. It's just different than at home. And so we really saw that with the remote school was that kids just weren't motivated in the same way because I couldn't necessarily see exactly what they were doing. or if I could, I couldn't really, they couldn't see what other kids are doing. Right. And, and they were actually in their home environment a lot of the time. So like yes. you said, 
that like, oh, in this in this room, we hang up our coats over here, that kind of peer awareness or peer pressure or like the system is different because I'm not at home. All that went away because they were at home and it was their mom yes. or their babysitter or their dad across the table. Um, so, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. How about your friends who are teaching first and second? Did they have a, an experience where it got a little easier with each grade of maturity or do you just think it depends on the kid and the school and a bunch of other things? I, I do think it gets easier with each grade. I think one of the biggest indicators of this is when we went back full time, how many parents chose to keep their child remote. And at my school, we have one kindergartner who kept stayed remote, but we have a whole class of fourth graders. Interesting. I think that just sort of tells you like it's not probably less safe for a fourth grader. Right. I mean, obviously, there is a point where COVID gets a little bit more. Sure. Um, but I think between kindergarten and fourth grade, it's probably not a medical change. It's a how well is this working? Right. I think this is this can be continued for the rest of the year. Um, so I think that, yes, people saw that for sure. Yeah. And that was my experience as well with a second and fifth and seventh, um, that just the, the study skills and the independent, um, learning, like you said, that they accumulate over time that I think as parents, we don't even appreciate that those are learned skills that teachers cultivate in our kids but we sure appreciate them now because we can see how a six-year-old does not have that ability. And even an eight-year-old just two years later might. And so that's a lot of credit to all the teachers who have come before who have given our kids those skills. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing is the fact that kindergarten um, really isn't meant to be all academic, Yeah, but it's very hard to play on the computer um, some of the things you were mentioning as far as academic, like study skills, it's hard to teach those through a computer, but they are so important part of kindergarten. It's also like, how do we line up? Yeah. We get, um, pack up our things at the end of the day. And so I'm used to teaching say four or five lessons per day in a normal day, um, normal times. But then when you have this whole full day of virtual to fill, you're, you don't even, it's hard to know how to fill it. Like you have to add things because you don't have to build in, like, yes, you take breaks and things, but you don't have to build in like a bunch, you know, five kids asked to go to the bathroom and that takes a while, yeah. Yeah. that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So we just had to do more, which I think is hard for them too. Yeah, it's a lot hard. And it's, it kind of is I'm sure kills some of the joy for you as well, because yeah. 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 Megan, the end of the school year and kickoff to summer is a busy time of the year for families, but we can all eat stress-free and hit our wellness goals with ready to eat meals from our sponsor factor. Factor's delicious meals are never frozen and can be ready to eat in just two minutes. You can pick from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular choices like calorie smart protein plus and keto. Plus, they have more than 60 add-ons like breakfast, lunch, snacks, and beverages to keep you fueled all day long. So our team was comparing notes recently on our favorite factor meals, and Katie loved the herb-crusted chicken with mashed cauliflower and toasted almond green beans. I loved that one, too. And get this, so did her little boy, Charlie. She heated it up for lunch one day, and Charlie, who's three, ate almost all of the green beans. I mean, that's quite an endorsement, right? I was going to say, what a parenting win. <laughs> and I get it, Charlie. Those green beans are crazy good. 
And if you really want to treat yourself, they even have meals with filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Listeners, head to factormeals.com slash momhour50 and use code momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code momhour5050 at factormeals.com slash momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. We are welcoming back Vionic as a sponsor today. And Sarah, I will be honest, I was sorting through my warmer weather wardrobe the other day and it could seriously use a refresh, but you know what's good to go? My shoes. I've got a great selection to choose from thanks to the Vionic Vitals collection. And lately the pair I keep putting on again and again is the Uptown Loafer. I have two pairs, one in sand suede and the other in camel leather, but please don't make me pick a favorite. Oh, I won't. I'll let you keep both. That's so funny, Megan, because I was a little jealous of your Uptown loafers. I was the last one on our team to get a pair, but I just did. I also got mine in the sand suede, and I think I've worn them like four times this week. They really finish off a cute spring outfit. The Vionic Vitals collection has the best essential styles for everyday wear to get you ready for spring. And no matter what shoes you choose, you'll be on the go in comfort because every single pair of Vionic shoes delivers their trademark Viomotion technology for a difference you can feel. Vionic sandals, sneakers, and flats all offer incredible support, stability, and cushioning, and every pair comes with a 30-day risk-free trial, so it's easy to try them out. Use code themomhour 15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at vionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's a one-time use only. Vionic Shoes. Wearable well-being for your feet. All right, we're back and we've spent some time talking about just how rough this uh, academic school year and last spring were on families and especially families with young students. But now I want to talk about this weird thing that's happening, Kelly, which is that um, all over the country at different times and in different ways, kids are returning to school in person. And, and some may have returned even as, as long ago as last fall, but it feels like a big, a big wave of returning to the classroom in person, especially this spring. And now we have a whole bunch of new things to worry about. So we all want, it's the thing we all were hoping for all year. Um, but I know in our community, we're, we're hearing a lot from parents who have some concerns. And, and of course, we're looking ahead to fall as well. So these concerns are happening right now, but I think a lot of people are looking ahead to fall as well. So let's go through some of the top ones. And I would love to just hear your perspective and maybe we can um, be a voice of calm for these parents, but also validate, um, you know, validate that these are concerns and that you're hearing them in your community. And, and as a mom, you might be feeling them too. So I'll just kind of lob them at you and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, So the first one is a big one. And that is Parents are concerned about kids being behind academically or this um, quote unquote learning loss that we all hear about. Um, and I think with kinders, especially, you know, even in non-COVID years, people get real riled up about, does my kid need to be able to read before kindergarten? And you and I will link up the last conversation we had when you came on the mom hour. But um, so you add this pandemic year and people have real concerns about how far behind academically their kid is, whether they're entering kinder or entering fifth. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with this. I keep hearing about this supposed learning loss. I'm not seeing it in kindergarten right now in my class. Um, You know, I have a couple of kids who have things they need to work on. That's true in a normal year. Um, 
I think that remote learning, even though we just talked about all the things that are hard about it, wasn't as bad as a lot of people think it was. Mm-hmm. It was really bad from the parent perspective. Because yes. Help so much, right? which is not great. Like we all have other things we need to be doing. So that's a problem. But I think from the kid perspective, as far as actually picking up academics, it wasn't as bad as people think. Mm-hmm. There were actually some great things about it. For example, um, that kids were getting help from home and parents were more involved in what the kid, their child was learning. I mean, I know my son, um, he had a really hard time doing his writing independently in the morning when he was supposed to be doing it. So I would do it with him when I got home. And at school, he doesn't get someone with him one yeah. each day, right? Um, and then hybrid, there was much smaller class sizes. So the yeah. um, ratio was much better in, in favor of students having more time with teachers. So I don't think that kids are as behind as people feel. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the reasons why parents might feel that their kid is behind is because they're very aware and really on the front lines of how their child is doing in a way that they never were before. Right. And I totally get that. I have found myself multiple times this year being super alarmed about the fact that my first grader does not want to do writing on his own and seems to have such a hard time with it. But when I talk to his teacher about it, she's just like, yeah, but like at school, he really does fine. And he does sometimes have a hard time coming up with an idea. You know, it's not really as big of a deal. Like to me, when every day at four o'clock, this is what I'm doing. Right. Well, you're so right. And if if you think about it in a traditional classroom year, it's the teacher's job to identify those areas of struggle, to be working with kids on them. And they're not they're not sending notes home to parents every single day about that kind of thing. Like you said, parents don't usually have like a front row seat to what their child is struggling through and and struggling is is that is like the point right we're we're, we're right. going to learn and learn new skills and that doesn't always happen in a linear way and normally it would be not until conferences or if something was really a problem then you might hear from yes. the teacher but you're right that parents have this perceived they're watching the struggle even if it's a norm within a typical or normal amount of struggle so i can see how yes. that would create that feeling yeah Yeah. So I think that's one of the big things. And then if your child truly is behind, and of course, some children are, and some kids would be in a normal year, Mm -hmm. Some kids um, really remote learning did not work for their learning style. Um, They really need more teacher facing like in person. Um, And that's true for a lot of children. And if that's the case, I, I think that's still okay. Because especially at these younger years, there's plenty of time to figure this all out. Mm-hmm. The teachers know that kids haven't had the same exposure as usual. And so we're planning for that. I mean, I just spent a little bit of time today while my students were at art um, updating a file that I used last year to make it work better for this year. Because I just don't expect the exact same thing of my, even though most of my kids really aren't behind, I think their stamina might be a little bit different just because they have school for as long of days. And so I changed what I was expecting of them for the lesson. And I do that frequently if needed. Yeah. And if we play this out two, three, four years in the future, it's not like teachers are going to forget like what happened. Like we all no. we experienced something in a truly global, like 
community way where even if we're talking four years from now and a kid is, you know, like kind of struggled with getting the foundation of arithmetic or something that like we have an asterisk on this entire like couple of school years that will be widely known. That's something I keep coming back to is like you don't have to explain to anybody what happened for next year. Like the first next year's incoming first graders those teachers, they, they were there. They were parents right. and they were teachers. And so I think there's going to be a lot of compassion and a lot of really smart, like you said, retooling um, that goes for several years in the future, um, no matter what age the child was when the pandemic hit. Yeah. And I really don't think that in four years, you're going to notice a big difference. I, I don't either. Yeah. But I really don't think that we're going to. I think yeah. a lot of this is going to get caught up. I I honestly think there was more of a learning loss problem last year when we really weren't barely even doing school because it was right. such crisis mode. I think this year, most things have been hot. It's just a matter of, you know, getting the stamina back and the yeah. all of that. And it wasn't as fun, but it, you got it done. Like it didn't, there yes. was a lot missing. But like I, what I'm hearing you say is that those those key benchmarks in, in many situations were actually hit this year, which is really helpful they to hear. Were. Well, let's talk about some more social emotional worries that parents have. Um, and I'll just list off a whole bunch and you can you can cherry pick whatever you want um, to speak to. But, you know, we have parents concerned that kids have not played with friends or haven't been social in a long time. For a shy kid, that might mean that they don't know how to get in at all. And for a more like socially outward kid, they might have trouble regulating or get overexcited. Also, this is an age where social emotional learning is kind of messy anyway. So there's that, but there's also things like, I think parents, some parents are concerned about kids who don't separate easily, who haven't left mom. Um, my sister has a three and a half year old who would have been in preschool or, or some kind of program in the last Mm -hmm. year and a half and hasn't been. And she doesn't know if she's going to separate well, because she's literally never had to. So, um, let's talk about all of those things I would think would come up in a normal kindergarten year, learning to separate appropriately, learning to find friends and play with friends. Um, bringing shy kids out of their shell. So what what differences do you see, if any, now that your kinders are returning to school? And how can we reassure parents that, again, it's going to be okay? Yeah. Uh, again, I'm not seeing huge differences. I'm That's seeing, awesome. The biggest thing I'm seeing is that the kids are just so excited to play. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's far less conflict than there ever is in kindergarten. And conflicts in kindergarten are very based on a misunderstanding or a, you know, like I thought you said this, but you said this kind of situation. I'm, I barely ever see that um, because they're just so happy to be out and playing together. So I'm not seeing huge issues with the social at all. Right. Um, I, I think, I do think that part of that probably is moving to the hybrid first because they were in those small groups, which I do think if your school did not do that, one way that you could um, kind of facilitate for the, your own child is sort of like start with a play date with one friend from your child's class and get them sort of comfortable with that person. Maybe have like two outdoor play dates with them and then maybe invite like three kids over and just so that they're at least seeing the kids that they're going to be going to school with. Yeah. Which honestly is like a recommendation that I have all the time before mm-hmm. kids like meet someone in your kid's class and they'll have someone that they know on the first day and they'll feel more comfortable. Um, so that's, you know, a very similar recommendation in this situation. 
I, I haven't seen a lot of separation anxiety either, but I do, I do see that how that could happen. And I actually think that might be more of an issue for the incoming kindergartners next year. Yeah. Because like you said, with your sister, and I know several people where this is the case, their ch- children didn't go to preschool and would have. Right. Um, and so I do think that maybe next year we'll see that more. But I also think that separation anxiety is so normal at this age. Exactly. That I think we'll just use the same tricks that we always do, you know, form a plan with your child, you know, remind them that you always come back. Just the things that we always do. Yep. And and patience to walk through. I mean, I've walked through separation anxiety three times for extended periods of time. I mean, screaming at preschool drop off for entire years of my life, like not like a week long phase. Like, (laughs) so I, it's not to be dismissive of it, but also to understand that it's developmentally normal. And when the caregivers and the system feel good to you, and in other words, you trust that when you do walk away, your child's being cared for and, and nurtured in the way that feels good to you. Then I think you just you just literally are like, well, this is the phase that I'm in. It's like the phase when your yes. baby's waking up every three hours. It's not ideal, yes. but it's not going to last forever. Yes. Um, well, that's really encouraging to hear. And I would add that every kindergarten and preschool and first grade teacher I've ever known is so adept at handling those typical separation anxieties. When you're a parent, it can be kind of embarrassing if your kid is the only one who's crying on the first day. I've been there. Um, but, but again, the, it's so normal to the teachers and it, I don't think there's no judgment. There's no, like, it's just like, Oh, yep. Seen this before. So hopefully that can reassure people. That's very true. And I've been through it on both ends. Both of my children cried when they were (laughs) younger at kind of like daycare, preschool drop-offs. And it's obviously way worse when you're the parent as the teacher, you're just like, Oh, yep. Another day. Like not even, um, you know, you feel bad for the child, you feel bad for the parents, but it's not really making my day bad. You know, like I kind of, right. all these teachers must be like, oh, there's my kid. But then it's like, no, they, they're not thinking that they don't, yeah. you know, it's no big deal to them. Yeah, totally. Um, and before I'm going to keep going here, cause this is so helpful, but I, I did want to mention that later in this episode, we are going to touch on this idea of holding back a entering kindergartner. And I don't want to, yes. I, I want people to know we're going to return to that because some of these things I can see how people are thinking, well, she's not very good at separating yet, or he's like socially behind. And then that can become a reason for holding a child back, which as we'll get to may or may not be a good reason. But again, just to underscore this, like these are typical kindergarten behaviors anyway. And the fact that it's been a pandemic year, you're not seeing huge variance from the norm in your, in your sample size. And our teachers are, are so well-trained to deal with this. So We'll, we'll come back to that idea of are any of these reason enough to hold a kid back. But I, I want to touch on one more thing here that I think um, affects a lot of families. And that is a kid that maybe isn't developing typically or maybe is getting services for speech, for example, or is exploring the IEP process for a learning difference. This is, can be incredibly stressful for families of young children anyway, because as you know, it's it's a complicated system to navigate and it involves a whole lot of appointments and paperwork and meetings. Um, and then of course, if there's been loss or time away from those services through the pandemic, that can be additionally stressful. So I wonder if you have any experience this year working with kids who had IEPs or learning differences, um, or if you have a plan for say next fall for just making sure those families feel like they're equipped to start the year. Um, now that we're kind of moving forward. 
Yes. So I think one of the tough things about this question is that um, we always talk about, and I think a lot of parents are aware of this, that early intervention is so important when it comes to any kind of learning challenge that a child has, whether it be speech or behavior, anything like that. The earlier you can help them, the better. And then we have this pandemic. (laughs) Now I'm saying, let's give them some time to just like see how it plays out when they come back to normal. Right. Yes, that would be more so for a child who's not yet on an IP, but maybe you have some concerns and you're Mm -hmm. thinking maybe I should get them tested. Um, Obviously, if they're already on an IP, then that's a different situation because they should already be receiving services. but if they, if you're kind of wondering, I do think it's, this is the one time I'm going to say mm-hmm. it might make sense just to like, kind of see how they do once they get back in that classroom environment, once they're getting instruction every day from the teacher, does that help the situation at all? Whatever, you know, um, yeah. challenge they're coming up on. If they, I think waiting a little bit, like I'm talking a few months from when things return to normal for your family and your situation Mm -hmm. could be from now, it could be from um, September. And that's something that we do in kindergarten as well. Like if a kid comes in on the first day and I'm like, Ooh, I have some concerns. I don't immediately, you know, freak out about it. I watch for a little bit. Um, But if your child already has learning challenges that you are addressing and um, the child has a plan, then I think it's a great time to let the plan be played out. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as they get back to school, I mean, they should have been getting services all year. Last year was a little different, um, at least here. I'm not sure how that's working across the whole country, but um, they will be getting, you know, in-person. Once they go back, everything should be going back to in-person services and what they should be getting. And so I think obviously make sure that's happening. If your child says like, it's not happening, then you'll want right. to address that. Um, but if it is happening, then I would just wait and kind of let the services do what they're supposed to do. Right. For a couple of months, see how they're doing, be in touch with the teacher during that time. If, if the teacher has any concerns, um, tell, tell, voice what your concerns are. Um, but I also think that waiting and giving the system time to do what it's supposed to do is important at this point. I think that's so wise. And I'm so glad you said that, Kelly, especially because you're right. The emphasis on early intervention with anything um, Mm -hmm. has been kind of drilled into us over the last several years for for good reason, of course. But as we've learned, like some of uh, conventional advice has to be taken with a grain of salt when applied to this new lens that we have, which is a global pandemic. I can also speak from experience of just having a kid with a speech IEP that did not get even initiated until third grade because it wasn't overall um, causing learning disruption or communication problems until he was old enough that it was clear that he wasn't on par with his peers. So not every um, diagnosis or like investigation process has to be in place before kindergarten or in kindergarten or before first grade or whatever. Obviously, we understand the the benefits to being aware of these things. And I think as a society and as, as schools, we are so much more aware of what to look for. But maybe that has placed parents in this feeling of like, if they don't 
if they don't get it all solved right now, like X, Y, Z bad will happen. And I, I think it's really helpful for you to hear that the watch and wait is a, that's a normal part of the process of supporting kids with learning differences. Yes. Even not with the pandemic. Like you said, right. I think that's a great example. Like there's a lot of learning um, differences or challenges that you just can't tease out when they're still in kindergarten. You just aren't sure um, whether or not it's just a maturity or a, you know, anything. Um, And so you need to use a wait and see approach even outside of a pandemic. So I think it's not something that the school is saying like, whoa, can you like, we need to look into this. Then I think it's a wait and see approach is the best thing you can do right now. Right. Right. And, and I would add to that, you know, making sure that, like you said, whatever resources are already available to you are, you know, being used to their full capacity that you're doing what you need in terms of like self-care as a mom to, you know, to like take care of yourself so that you can be there for a kid maybe who has a harder time with virtual learning. Um, so all of that combined, I think it's really reassuring just to know that, um, the schools are on it and, and yes. ready and prepared. So, yeah. And one more thing, um, I know that in my district, and I believe this will probably be the case for many, there are going to be extra summer things this summer because mm-hmm. of all the learning loss that we know has happened. Um, and so if your child gets recommended to do something like that, or it's offered to them, I would recommend that because I think mm-hmm. a great time to catch kids up who are having more challenges. So I would, even though I'm saying wait and see, yeah. it's offered to you, I would definitely take, um, especially right now. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. Sarah, our sponsor, Haya Health, makes a kid's daily multivitamin that parents can feel great about giving their kids because they have no added sugars or dyes. And our kids who have tried Haya Vitamins have loved them, which is important, right? Because what good is a bottle of vitamins that your kid won't take? Haya was founded by two dads who didn't like the ingredients label on some of the popular children's vitamins they were seeing on store shelves. So they got to work developing a formula that would help fill the most common nutrient gaps in modern kids' diets. Haya's Chewable Kids Vitamin is made with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables and then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals. They're also vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, and nut-free. Haya manufactures their vitamins right here in the USA with globally sourced ingredients, and then they ship their chewable vitamins directly to your door on a pediatrician-recommended schedule. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You're going to get 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, go to HayaHealth.com slash MomHour. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash MomHour and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Okay, Megan. Well, over here at the Mom Hour, we are big fans of our sponsor, Our Place. In fact, you, me, and our team member, Katie, were all comparing notes on our favorite product, Katie was telling us that even though she's packing up to move her family to a new house, she cannot put that mini perfect pot from our place into the boxes yet because she's using it like every night. Well, as someone who also has a perfect pot, I got mine as part of their mini home cook duo set. I get it. It's nonstick, which is key, but it also has all these handy features like a steam release lid with a built in strainer and this nice beechwood spoon that nests on the handle in this perfect little peg. Okay, well, I didn't get this pot, but now I want it. That sounds so great. 
Our Place's cookware is great to cook with, beautiful to look at, and healthier for us as well. All of Our Place's products are made without PFAS, also known as forever chemicals. In addition to their cookware and tableware, Our Place is also making waves with their Wonder Oven, the most stylish all-in-one air fryer and toaster oven. Again, free from the forever chemicals found in many of those air fryers. Listeners, Our Place offers a 100-day trial with free shipping and returns, and we've got a great deal for you. Go to fromourplace.com and enter the code MOMHOUR at checkout to receive 10% off site-wide. That's fromourplace.com, code MOMHOUR. Okay, so Kelly, last time you were on the Mom Hour, we talked quite a bit about this, just the concept of kindergarten readiness in general, and then this big question, which used to be just fall birthdays or maybe like cutoff birthdays, but now it seems like it's half the population of should I, if I can, should I wait and send my kid a year later to kindergarten? So I guess let's dig into this a lot, but first maybe we can kind of review your thoughts pre-pandemic, your thoughts on this. Um, And if there's like, I know there's no formula because it's so individual, but if there are some some places to start, some um, some some people that parents could talk to, like their preschool teachers, or some ways to suss out what makes most sense for your family, pandemic or no pandemic, kind of where, how do you advise people on this? Okay, so I think the biggest thing is, I do think preschool teachers are a good source of information. Um, I don't think that they always know exactly what kindergarten is like. And so- mm-hmm. I've had situations where a child, the parent says like, well, their preschool teacher said they were totally ready. Um, I think the best thing to do with asking the preschool teacher is just ask for, you know, what are their challenges at school? What are things that are going well? Kind of looking at that more so than does the preschool teacher think they should go? That really should be a parent decision. Um, But I think that when you're looking at the reason, you know, generally whether or not your child is ready for kindergarten, it's more about, and I remember we definitely talked about this last time. It's more about like their general independence, their, um, it's more like the social readiness, um, ability to do things on their own and less about the academic. Okay. So I'm going to stop you there. Cause I think that's really important. So when, when you were on last time, we talked about very tangible things and people can go back and listen um, to that episode, but very specific things like, can they sit and listen to a story for a couple of minutes? Notice we didn't say, can they read or identify the words in the story, but are they familiar with the process of sitting on a rug and listening to a book for a couple of minutes? Can they put their coat on by themselves? Do they know how to like, use a toilet by themselves. I mean, these are achievable, (laughs) achievable benchmarks that I think parents should feel really good about because I think sometimes we apply a much more academic lens to this. And, and I mean, how often, I think you're in our Facebook group, right? Like how often are there posts about kids not knowing all their letters or all their sounds or, um, so really what we're saying is the behavioral readiness is probably more important than the academic readiness, but even with the behavioral readiness, are there some, are there some parents you think who even have high, like too high of expectations for that? In other words, kids who might be rowdy or boisterous or talkative, um, 
Is that a deal breaker for kindergarten readiness or is that something Definitely that... Definitely not. Okay. So let's talk a little more about those kind of behavioral readiness. Yeah. I mean, signs. I think I think the things that you mentioned as far as like the bathroom and being able to put on their coats and things like that, behavior, I agree. Um, being able to sit and listen to the directions of someone for, let's say, five to 10 minutes at a time, I think is good. Um being able to follow along with a group. So if it's like time to go outside, they're not like, no, I'm doing this right. um, environment. Of course, at home, like all of our kids are like that, but in a school environment, can they stay with a group? Um, I think those are the big things for behavior. I mean, yeah, I can't even think I'm, so many of the behavior things that we work on at the beginning of kindergarten, like raising your hand and stuff like that. They really don't need to, be solid on before they enter. Right. And I see, I also see some parents um, when they talk about readiness, wondering about like socially, socially immature. I see that a lot, which might mean um, being aggressive toward friends still, or being overly shy or reserved. Um, again, I are, are those things that you work on in kindergarten or are there ways to yes. kind of know whether that's at the more extreme level or whether that's a kid who, yeah, could, could go into kindergarten and work on those skills while they're there? I think that's the type of thing that's really helpful to ask the preschool teacher because they're seeing a whole class and how mm-hmm. the child is in that environment. It is very hard. I mean, if you have multiple kids, you can kind of see a difference at times, but I do think it's hard to see with your own child how severe something that they do is if it's, you know, like not really a big deal versus a huge deal. Um, right. So I think Asking the preschool, you know, like on a scale of your classroom, how severe is this? Does it seem like, because also children have behavior problems in fourth grade. Um, It's, it's, you have to kind of be able to figure out whether it seems like something they might grow out of or whether it's just the child. Um, It's hard to clearly distinguish, but I think you kind of know if your child often gets along well with older kids or is more drawn to younger children and how they kind of match up with that child socially. Yeah, that's all really good. And I will point listeners back to the conversation we had back when you were on the first time, because we did, we talked a lot more about kind of the pros and cons of waiting versus going this year. Um, So now let's sort of take that into pandemic 2021. Are you seeing more um, more parents on the fence about this this year, given some of the concerns we've talked about, about kids maybe not being up to speed academically or not having had any friends for the last year? Or do you think it's going to be about the same as, as parents weigh this decision this year? I think it's going to be a con- more of a concern for parents. Um, one thing that I think everyone needs to do if they're considering this is find out what your state rules are going to be this year. Because, for example, where I am, we have pretty strict guidance to send kids when they're age ready. Now, I think this is going to be most applicable to K going into one. Because mm-hmm. um, if we let every child who, say, didn't go to kindergarten on time this year or went to um, a, like, stayed at their preschool, let's say, because sure. their parents wanted full, a full day. Um, if we, if we have all of those children then come to kindergarten next year, what is the plan? Because we can't, 
47 kids in a kindergarten class. Um, and so given that all the kids are kind of struggling with this situation of potentially being a little bit behind in all these different situations, what, what we, what the state would prefer, at least is what I'm hearing is everyone to just go with their age time. And then the, and then the teacher to kind of manage the different and the school in general, I mean, they'll be yeah. or manage the different levels of the kids and help get the kids caught up who need to be. And that's not far outside of the norm of what we already do, especially in kindergarten, because kindergarten, we're used to getting kids from all different schools, right? Different. Some kids don't go to preschool at all, which is right. fine. Um, and so we're very used to that. And I think even first grade is used to that because I think some kids do stay at their childcare situation for kindergarten and things like that. So I think the teachers are ready for even more variation than we already have and um, expecting a little bit more variation than we already have. Yeah. And when you say variation in this case, you mean variation in readiness and past experience, not variation in age. Because because if we left it up to the parents, and I'm just sort of like, I'm editorializing what you said, but if we left it up to individual families, you could end up with four and a half to seven-year-olds in kindergarten, which is, I mean, with our current school system, that is not really how it works. Now, I've been in mixed-age Montessori classrooms that I've actually loved, and I think mixed-age learning can be really cool, but with, with our public school system set up the way it is, that probably wouldn't be ideal. And if you carry that forward through all the grades, you now have, you know, seven and a half to 10 year olds in third grade or whatever. And, and right. so it does seem to my logical brain to make sense with, to start with some parameters that are age-based. Yeah. And I do think that districts may have some flexibility, but again, I think the best thing, if you're starting to make this decision, find out if this is even a decision. Mm-hmm. If- if it's not, you just send your kid when they're age ready and you don't have to think about this again. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. So starting with your local rules, um, yeah. leaning on the preschool teachers or other adults who know your child, going back and listening to our last interview about this and and reading some other smart things. Maybe we can link some things up in the in the show notes too. Um, just some common sense ways to ways to think about that. I just really feel for parents who, you know, feel like they're making a decision that could potentially affect how old their kid is relative to classmates for the next 12 or 13 years, which I guess is is true in a lot of ways. Um, I've just, I've seen it work both ways very well. And I, I think it will be okay no matter what is usually my yeah. message, as, as you know. Yes. And I, I completely agree that it will be okay no matter what. And I also think that this year, Instead of thinking like, wow, this is an even bigger problem because, you know, we've had this pandemic and they didn't have preschool. I think it might be even smaller problem because Mm -hmm. everyone's in the same boat. It's just going to take us a little while. I don't think it's going to take four years, but it might take one, maybe two years to get the kids sort of back to what is normal for kindergarten, which is already so far all over the place. Right. So I don't think that you can really go super wrong here. And I also think that there's always the option if you send them of holding back later, Mm -hmm. which I know is obviously like a bigger and different decision. Um, But it is possible if you make the decision to just send them when they're age ready now and then see later how it goes. 
Yes. And I will add one final note that I've had several school decisions that I have made based on what I thought was best for myself and my own mental health or the family unit. And uh, that has never failed me because in in a situation where it might be great or it might be kind of hard either way and I don't know, I can always fall back on like, what's the thing that makes sense for my sanity as a mom and my family's like the, the, you know, harmony of the family unit. And sometimes with decisions about kinder and first it's, it's a, it's logistical, right? Megan and I did a couple of episodes about school decisions a few months ago, and I can link to those too, but sometimes it's like, do, can I afford the tuition for another year at the Montessori? Or do I want to drive to two different schools when I already have a kid in second grade at the public school? So I just don't, I want to like, Two thumbs up for sometimes making this decision that is the path of least resistance and crossing your fingers and hoping it all works out because I think that's a viable path as well. And most of the time it is going to work out, even if at, you know, maybe the first month of kindergarten is kind of hard with separation or something else. And you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done this. But if you give it till, I like to tell parents, give it till Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the U.S. Um, Canadian Thanksgiving's a little sooner. Canadians listen up. You don't don't get to use that. Yeah, you guys don't get to do that. Um, But I think like you need to give it some time before you decide if you went the wrong way. I mean, not would be much you could do then, but um, I think, you know, just give it some time. Yeah, I love that. I wanted to finish up by talking about this summer because it's kind of funny to air an episode about school in May because so many schools are going to finish up this month or next month. But again, nothing is normal about the way this school year has gone. So I thought we could talk specifically to parents of, I'm going to say all all primary students, so preschool through even second or third grade, about looking at this summer as, you know, an opportunity to maybe reset and maybe get ready for a, a hopefully more normal academic year to come. And if parents do have concerns about some of the things we've talked about, whether it's academic or social or just all the changes that kids are going to have this fall. I'm wondering if you can give us a few like really concrete things we could do or think about or practice this summer um, to get ready for kindergarten or for whatever school is next. Okay. So the first one that I would recommend is doing, if you feel comfortable, some sort of playdates or camp situation, because even though obviously playdates and camp are not the same as school, they do, they are both really great opportunities to practice those social skills that I feel like is probably the biggest loss that kids have had mm-hmm. last year, just because even socially now is still not quite normal because of mass and staying apart. Um, and so if you feel comfortable with that, I would not have like, so let's say your child has been remote all this year. I would not recommend unless it's absolutely crucial for your family for the first time they see kids again to be like the first day of school. Yeah. Playdates or even maybe like a small group outside type of camp would be a great way to sort of ease them back in um, to that environment. It's a great idea. Love it. So that's the first one. Um, And then the second one is, I think I mentioned when we were talking about the kindergarten readiness. One of the big things um, that I think is just so important at school is ability to be independent and kind of do things on your own because it's this year I have 16, but normally over 20 children in a class, 
and one teacher can't possibly zip everyone's coat and hang up everyone's jacket, you know, like mm-hmm. all the So I think something that um, might be really great for this summer is coming up with a couple of jobs or things that your child can do in your house. And this could go from going into or even preschool to um, a a third, fourth, fifth, even older kid. Yeah. Use this summer as a time to reset your family systems and say, okay, what jobs do I want my child to do around here? What can I hold them responsible for? Maybe pick something that they'll have to do every day because then they get in a routine. So an example of something that when my son went back full time, I was like, okay, it's time. You're a first grader. You're going to start emptying your lunchbox when you get home, taking out older. Um, Then he got really excited about that because kids actually like doing this stuff. I know it sounds crazy, but they they feel really good about themselves when they can do things on their own. Then he was like, oh, I'm going to start packing my lunch. So like it leads to other things. So you could do that, something like that for if they're going to camp, you could start uh, emptying out your own things. You could start, uh, if your kid is younger, maybe they're starting to put on their own shoes now, or they're starting to pack up um, their beach towel when you go to the pool each day, or maybe they're the one who's in charge of grabbing it when you leave. And you're going to have to remind them, like, and believe me, remind kindergartners all day of like, you know, we're hanging our jacket on the back of our chair this year, you know? this um but you're going to have to remind them but i think that gives them the confidence to know that they can do these things on their own and that's just going to help the beginning of their school year no matter what grade they're going into be better because when the teacher introduces this new routine new jobs that they have in the classroom they won't be like what i have to do things for myself you know like they'll really feel that they can do these things yeah okay and i this i'm like Yes, this is amen. So much amen to this in general, not just for pandemic learning loss. Um, And I want to add that I, as a parent, sometimes fall into the trap of feeling really empathetic for my kids if they're having a hard time, meaning like, oh, my gosh, this kid has, you know, really lost out on a lot this year. They're missing their friends. I made them move to a new school. So I'm going to be a I'm going to help them because I feel bad and I'm going to do I'm going to smooth the path a little bit by, you know, emptying their lunch for them or not adding to their plate. They're already struggling emotionally a little bit. So I'm going to set the table instead of calling over the kid who knows it's their job, but they had a rough day. Now, this is a case by case situation. I'm not saying like you're a terrible parent if you ever do this, but I think for me, it backfires because you're so right, Kelly, that kids feel good when they are able to meet clear expectations in a consistent manner. And in whether that's in a household or in a school setting. And I'm, I'm pretty like, I'm pretty strict. I think like I normally hold my kids accountable, but the pandemic has made me a little bit of a softy because I feel bad for them sometimes. So I think, well, I'm just going to do that. So I can see a parent thinking, gosh, this, this five-year-old has so much that's about to change in his life. He's going to go to kindergarten. Like, I just want to, you know, I just want to keep him little and let him play and all that, which of course, of course is true. But I think you're so right that achievable, repeated daily jobs and tasks is like the best thing we can do for our kids of any age. And I'm all the way up through my middle school. I just have to keep thinking of higher expectations and harder tasks. Yes, exactly. And for the really young kids, I think it really helps. And this is probably true with the older ones, too, to have a list of what they need, mm-hmm. a visual. So for kids who can't read, you could just print out little clip art pictures of like, you know, 
um, maybe like the table, like the um, chair that they need to set or whatever, you know, whatever their job is. And then for older kids, you can just write it, which is obviously easier. And I find that's really helpful because then you don't feel like the nag who's like, did you make your lunch yet? You can just be like, did you look at the list? Or like, yep. That's that's how we do it in our family. Yep. Um, Yeah. So I think that works really well. So that would be a big thing I think you could do. Maybe that would be like the top thing I would say if you do any of these. Um, And then moving into the more academic things, I know this is like such a broken record, but reading to your kids is a broken record because it works. It's Mm -hmm. helpful. It's a connection point for your child. Um, And I think kind of going back to what you said about like pandemic being kind of a softie. I also think another thing that's happened is that all of us are like crazed people this year. And so we're doing things for our kids because it's faster. We're skipping things like reading because we're like, I already like made them do all this work earlier or right. whatever. Like that's a nice, enjoyable way to just connect with your kids, maybe at bedtime. Maybe bedtime doesn't work for your family, maybe in the morning. And you can read to them. And I'm talking about third graders. Like yes. four, just keep reading to them. Um, visit the library if it's open, things like that, just to get them excited about reading and listening to books. That just really does help them academically, even though you might not feel like it because maybe you're not making them read. But if you're reading to them, that will help. And um, I also am a huge proponent of reading any book that kids like, even if you think it's terrible. (laughs) The child is really testing me on this one. We've read every hero book on the planet. Um, but I grew up on babysitters club and I now like have a master's degree in reading and read myself. So I feel like it doesn't have to be classics, you know, just like, and it also does not have to have anything to do with teaching that child to read. I think we get very confused about this. We know we're supposed to read to our pre-readers, like our two, three, four year olds. But then for some reason, when the teachers and the schools say reading aloud, that counts for the reading log, that that still counts. And then I still see parents picking books that are like phonics based, like sounded out books. And it's like, no, 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 you can read aloud from whatever you and your kid mutually find interesting. Or like you said that your kid finds interesting. You are not teaching the child to read. You're not you're not you can still point to the words. And we all know that's like a good strategy. But like it it's it's a power struggle to teach a child to read or to ask a child to sound this out and unless that's your specific homework that you've that your teacher has told you you're supposed to do i think parents sometimes assume that's what they're supposed to be doing and it breaks my reading heart in all to like 10 million pieces because we just mean read aloud period yes. like the kid yes. could be like actually doing somersaults in the family room and you could be reading aloud if they don't want to sit still um yes so yes amen to that one too Yes. And you can do audiobooks too, on, you know, when, when you feel like it. So it. that's also great. And then I think math is just one of those things that parents sort of forget to work on, but it's also easier, I think, even than reading because math is just like part of life. And so if you can just kind of in your mind think like, oh, how could I sort of turn this little snack that I'm giving my child with goldfish? Like, hey, can you count, tell me how many goldfish I gave you real quick for me? And then, you know, watch them count and hopefully they're moving each one as they count or like doing it in some organized way. Maybe they line them up. Um, and that kind of thing is just really helpful. And you don't have to do it every day. Like I'm right. thinking that we're reading with our kids at least a few times a week, maybe every day. But with math, I don't think you have to do it every day. I just think if you can kind of weave it in or 
hey, you're on a road trip this summer and you're like, what exit number is that? What do you, what exit number do you think is going to be next? You know, like just bringing in things that you're already doing. Um, count how many days until your vacation that you're going yes. on. Is it this that. age? Just love calendars. So yes. that's the kind of thing that um, is really prepping your kid for kindergarten, first grade, second grade math, but it's not like making them sit down and do a workbook, which I am not big on. People always ask me for recommendations on workbooks. And I keep saying like, I should really make my first grader do some workbooks so I can see if I like them. And then I just don't do it because <laughs> I think it was a prerequisite a for you coming on this podcast last time. I was like, I think this sounds great. I really want to have you on, but how do you feel about workbooks, especially in the summer? No, because I, I feel the same way. Um, and um, I was going to say about the math, too, is just like I said, with the reading, I don't think I don't think you necessarily have to go the next step to be like, oh, shoot, she's skipping 12 every time she counts. Like now we've got to work on this every day. I think if you approach it just with curiosity and like you said, weaving it in, it's it's kindergarten's job to work on that. It's yes. it's your job to sort of make it a normal part of everyday conversation Um, if they aren't counting perfectly or if they don't know the answer to the thing that you prompt, that's not a sentence for you to go out and buy all the math workbooks. That's just sort of like it's giving you a little bit of feedback. It might be feedback for the teacher when they start. Um, But sometimes I think we go into that like quiz mode, like, nope, it's not 13. Like and then and then again with the power struggles. Yeah, I wouldn't even correct. Honestly, I would be like, oh, that's what you think. Great. Like, I mean. Not, um, I would not even correct if they're skipping a number that's completely normal at the beginning yep. of kindergarten. Um, so it's more about getting them excited about math and just seeing it in their life is love it. My goal would be in that. And then, this is almost like a workbook. So I had to ask you ahead of time to say it <laughs> because I even am like, oh, but one of my friends recommended to me this app. Um, I actually have it on my phone. And my four-year-old does it like it's, so it's called, um, duo, duo ABC. It's the Duolingo, uh-huh. um, type company. And, um, I have it on my phone. I'm sure you can put it on like an iPad or a tablet as well. I'm super picky about these kind of things. First of all, almost all of the, um, YouTube videos and things that are supposed to teach kids sounds like don't teach them right. Mm-hmm. I don't like, I don't, they don't even say the sound right. Drives me absolutely insane. So, um, but this, this program I think is really good. And one of the things I love about it is you work for five or 10 minutes and then it says, you got a star, come back tomorrow to get another one. So it's not meant for the kid to be on there for 60 minutes, two hours. It's, I love it. I mean, you can continue obviously, but it's meant to be done in very small parts. Um, and they work on like what the letters are and writing them, obviously you're writing it on a phone. So it's not perfect. I don't think that that's completely irrelevant because they're showing them the actual right way to do it, which is really nice. Um, so I think it's kind of a fun, like you're just trying to get your kid ready for kindergarten and you're in a waiting room. You could have it on your phone and just pull it out and have them do it for five or 10 minutes. Yeah. Or, and if they love it, tie it to one of those jobs that they do every day, like every day after we put our camp lunch away, like we snuggle and read a book and then do this for five minutes. I mean, you don't have to, yes. but like, I think those things can be, especially because what four-year-old doesn't want to have mom's phone yes. for five minutes. So it can yes. also be tied to- My four-year-old to, loves it. Yeah, like tied to some other um, 
some other part of the routine where it becomes almost like something to look forward to. I love that. And yeah, I'm glad that you're picky. And I I would prefer to learn about those things from, you know, you. It's obviously like not sponsored, not like it's just that's one that you've discovered that you like. So I love hearing that. Um, Okay, was that it or do we have any more? That is it. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. So, Kelly, this is so helpful. Um, tell everybody where to find you online or if you're working on anything besides surviving teach being a teacher mom in 2021. I know I'm I'm not working on much. Um, I have a blog. It's called Ask a Teacher Mom and um, it's askateachermom.wordpress.com. And I'm also on Instagram also at askateachermom. I I'm like looking here. Yep. So the last time I wrote on it was January 7th, 2020. So it's not up to date. Maybe I'll get motivated and write one before this comes. Um, But I do think there's some stuff on there that's still completely relevant. So want to check it out. Definitely do that. Awesome. And we'll connect everybody to your Instagram as well. And are you, you're in our Facebook group, I believe, right? Cause you're, you're a listener. Yeah. I don't know if I am actually. I'm well, a bad user of Facebook. So, well, so am I. I actually don't use it at all except for our group. So, for some reason, I thought I'd seen your name in there. But if you are in there, we'll be sure to kind of like let everybody in there know who you are because that's another place where conversation continues. And we have a lot of teachers yeah. in that group as well. So, great. I'm happy to answer anyone's questions too. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for being here and for being part of our community and just for all the work you do for kinders and kids and wishing you a very happy summer coming up. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And again, I hope you'll follow this up by listening next Friday to that bonus companion episode. It's going to be my conversation with college professor Xiaoyun Chu. That'll be out Friday, May 14th. And Megan and I will be back in your ears coming up on Tuesday with another all-new episode of The Mom Hour. Happy, happy Mother's Day, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon. The Mom Hour is supported by partners like Erica. Erica is the social media health app for teens that gives them the tools to unplug when they need to for improved health, study focus, sleep, and daily balance. Erica was built by a dad of three boys who saw that teens themselves were really becoming self-aware to the risks of social media, and he wanted to help them self-regulate. Erica works to hide distracting apps from your phone at the touch of a button, keeping them out of sight and out of mind without deleting your data. Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code THEMOMHOUR. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A dot A-P-P and use code THEMOMHOUR to save 20%. Sarah, I have been having just the best time making my new podcast, The Teas Made. I launched back in November and so far I've covered topics like staying warm on cold winter walks, nurturing creativity, how to be a great host, and even Nordic secrets to loving winter. Well, you know I am fan number one of The Teas Made. It's got such a cozy vibe, and it seems like you've really hit your stride in covering topics like wellness, self-care, comforting rituals and routines, and home and family life. Just look for The Teas Made with Megan Francis wherever you get your podcasts, or head to theteasmade.com to find all the episodes.